Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name. Really enjoyed the Sunday school lesson, and probably what I should have done is just told Ellis to just go on for another half hour, and we call it good. It uh, it's it's subject matter that's good for us to look at. For a few minutes this morning, I would like to speak to us of a subject that uh, is maybe. Oh, I don't know. What's the word I'm using? It's it's probably lean on practical application and long on doctrine and the way we think about a very important doctrine of the uh, of the death of Jesus and how that how that works in our lives. I've titled the message: Did Jesus die as a sacrifice or as a penalty for my sins? And does it really matter? Does it matter whether I think of Jesus' death as a sacrifice or a penalty? Well, that's something I never really gave much thought to. Um, it, you've probably heard terms or read terms like this. They're uh, very, um, very, um, you'll see this often in study, study Bibles, commentaries, this kind of thing. And, and, I, and I'll have to admit, I probably have said it myself at times and heard it over this pulpit at times. Something to the effect of, Christ died to pay the penalty for my sins. You, you've heard that. That's not uncommon language. We hear this. But is that really biblical language? That's the, that's the crux of the question. Is that a biblical term that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sin? Did Jesus' death in some way appease God's wrath on sinners? Is that biblical? A few months ago... In a, in a periodical that I subscribe to, the editorial that was written in this periodical, um, I began to realize that a, apparently this is a discussion among at least certain segments of the conservative Mennonite church. And I was a bit uh, befuddled and confused on this, um, on this thing. And so I, I called an elderly, I call him elderly, I guess he's elderly, an older bishop that I know from another region of the country that I knew lived in the, in where this periodical was coming from, right? So I said, can you help me out here? What, what is the, what is the, what are we discussing? Why this, why this sudden, um, discussion on, on penalties versus sacrifice? And so he, he began to explain this to me, and then I saw in the um, and he did a very good job. I was I was happy for the way he explained that. And then I saw this book in the uh, CLP uh, catalog. You might have seen it too. Sacrifice or penalty by Keith Kreider, and I'll admit, uh, so I'm not uh, accused of plagiarism. If you read this book, you will find that I draw many of my points that I'm going to make this morning from this book. And so maybe I'm giving a book report today. I'm not sure. But um, it was heavy reading, and I'll have to admit I had to discipline myself to sit down and read it slowly and carefully so I could comprehend it, what, it was, what, it, what it was saying. And I thought about just mentioning at some point that we all should read this book. But I know some of us aren't readers, and I knew that I was slugging through it. And I'm like, you know, there's going to be a certain population of us here that are never going to read this book. 
And so I'm going to give you a book report this morning on this, and I'd like to help you to see why I have arrived at the at the point where I have that I think it is important that we think about this in a certain way, all right? So the simple salvation language that we often use, or we sometimes use, maybe I shouldn't say often, but it's, it's language I have heard. It goes something like this. Man is a sinner and cannot save himself. And that's true. That's correct. God is holy and just and must punish sin, but he loves us and he wants to save us. So what God did is Jesus, as the perfect God-man, came to pay the penalty for our sin, making it possible for God's justice to be appeased through that death of Jesus and thereby we could be saved. Another way, in other words, we deserve the punishment. Jesus took the punishment. He was punished. He took our sins on himself and he was punished instead of us. God offers this salvation as a free gift. All we have to do is believe. That's kind of a four point step you hear fairly frequently and, um, I want you to think about that, whether, whether you believe that that is, that is what the Bible teaches as we, as we go through this this morning. I'll have to admit that probably before I studied this, I would have said, well, that sounds pretty spot on. But uh, after I was done reading the book, I'm not sure that I completely agree with the premise of those four points. As Keith points out in his book, He says, Jesus and the apostles never necessarily taught this plan of salvation. Instead, the Bible would teach that Jesus' blood was a divinely provided sacrifice for our sins, and that his blood is a divinely appointed cleansing agent. And I quote that from his book. And he points out that for the first 450 years of Christian history, Reconciliation through Jesus' blood was taught, but nothing was taught on the mechanics of it. In other words, it was a very simple gospel. So what this, what I just, what I am addressing, or when I talk about this penalty for our sins, quote, quote, this, this, um, this language has come to be known as the penal theory. Okay, that's, that's what it's called if you want to use theological terms, the penal theory. So the question could be asked, if, if Jesus and his apostles did not teach this, and for the first 450 years of the Christian church, this was not necessarily taught, why is it a common, a common, commonly used, um, language in today's world? Well, at the risk of belaboring history just a little bit, in the latter 1000s, there was a theologian known as Anselm of Canterbury. Okay, now I'm going to ask you next Sunday if you remember that word, but you don't have to. Anselm of Canterbury. He was a bishop, and he was the one that, that kind of um, came up with what we know of as the penal theory. Now, you've got to realize that during that time period, he lived in what we call the feudal system. All right? So you had the lords and the kings that lived in the castles on the hill that were 
unbelievably and ungodly wealthy, and you had the poor old serfs down here in the valley that were keeping these people rich. Okay, so that you, you talk about disparity. There was no, there was no um, uh, middle class in those days. You're either extremely richer, and you had like you were old King Cole, or you were his serf, one of the two. So if a serf would offend his overlord, his king, or his um, noble, or knight, or whatever that was, there was really no way to uh, make that right. He, he had nothing. There was nothing he could do. And so uh, about all he could do is uh, in some way provide a restitution in, in any way he possibly could, but that was usually fairly meager. All right? There wasn't much, much he had to, uh, to offer restitution for an offense that he, that he would have given to his overlord. So with that frame of reference, <clears throat> this, this bishop came up with this idea that God provides, God is our overlord, and we as the serfs, he provides satisfaction for our um, infraction against the overlord by providing the death of his innocent son to repair that divine honor that was damaged. Okay? If you can wrap your arms around that. It's kind of like the overlord ends up providing his own sacrifice since we are totally unable. We can't do it. Well, as time moves on and we have a different system of government, a different system of justice, a different uh, just societal system in, in general, today it's understood more in terms of justice, okay, this, this idea of the penal theory. So punishment is doled out on transgressors, giving them what they deserve. And so our understanding of justice leads to the concept of punishment and penalty that God wishes to give us, rather than extolling the virtues of righteousness and kindness, which God also possesses. And so this leads to an understanding of salvation that is very legal. All right, so salvation is this one-time event where we are placed from the this ledger to this ledger, a judicial transaction where a sinner is made a saint, God declares me righteous, and a life of discipleship is not really emphasized because it's not important. Okay, let's let's look a little bit at what Jesus how was Jesus thought of whenever he hit planet Earth? I think probably the best definition, the best description of who Jesus was and how he was viewed is John the Baptist when he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So he describes Jesus as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Obviously, he's he's pointing back to the Lamb that the Jewish people were very accustomed to sacrificing to take care of their sins. He said, This is that Lamb. I would like for you to turn with me to Exodus 12. This is the first time this lamb is uh, is mentioned in the Bible. And we're going to uh, to look a little bit here at what happened at the Passover, the Passover lamb. I'm going to read uh, Exodus 12, verse 21 through 23. Then Moses called for all the elders 
of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood, that is the basin, and strike the lintel and the two side posts and the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in into your house to smite you. And I'll stop reading there, but there's a few points that become clear as we uh, ponder these few verses here about this Passover lamb, which we understand Jesus to have been. So the Israelites had to believe the word of God. When Moses said that, they had to let it sink into their ears and understand that this was from God, right? God was going to kill the firstborn, and unless that lamb was killed and the blood was applied and the lamb eaten, they were going to suffer the same fate as the Egyptians. So they had to hear. The lamb had to be sacrificed. God in his mercy had provided this way that they could opt out of the death sentence. All right? The lamb did not die to satisfy the wrath of God that the Israelites in some way deserved. The lamb died because of God's mercy that he extended to those who believed and accepted the provision and acted on it. Now, I, I, wish, I wish I would have taken the time to look into this, and I did not. Maybe somebody knows this offhand. Was, did the Egyptians know about this? This goings on. In other words, if there would have been a believing Egyptian that would have found out about this thing of killing a lamb and striking the lentils and eating it and so on, would they have been spared? Does, does anybody know? Is that recorded anywhere? That that I don't know that for sure. All right, so we'll just leave that. But we know for sure that if the Israelites would not have, they would have suffered just as the Egyptians would have. The Israelites also had to obey by applying the blood and eating the lamb. Now, this is important. So killing the lamb would not have been enough. They could have went out and taken the best lamb they had there, and they could have killed that thing, and they could have said, well, now we did that. We killed it. Now we're going to see what happens. wouldn't have worked. The blood had to be applied to the lentils, and the lamb had to be completely eaten. Now, I think there's, there's a lesson here. Um, and, and I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit, but I'll, we'll come back and, and catch up to it again. In the same way, Jesus' death, e- even though he died, th- that won't save me necessarily. Now, I know that sounds like just heresy right off the bat, but just stick with me a little bit. It does say that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Well, then why wouldn't the whole world be saved? If he died for the whole world, then the whole world should be saved, Right. No, it is conditional. There was conditions that went along with that. They had to apply the blood, eat the lamb. All right? Same with us. Our salvation is conditional. We have to accept the blood, and we have to live the way that Jesus taught as part of that condition for salvation. Okay? Now, there was no way the Israelites could have eaten that lamb and struck the blood without killing the lamb. Couldn't have done it. You know, the cart before the horse thing? Couldn't have, wouldn't, couldn't have and wouldn't have happened. 
and again, I'm, I'm ahead of myself, but, but think through this. You can go out and you can take a, a um, sinner off the streets of Lansing here, and you can say, I want you to return all the money you ever stole, and I would like you to uh, put a shirt on your back, and I would like you to um, uh, get a haircut, and all these things, and you could bring him in here and sit him down, and he would look like one of us. Would he be saved? Of course he wouldn't be. You see what I'm saying? It takes both. It does take both, and there is a cart and there is a horse here. The two together is what caused the destroyer to pass over and not face the destruction of those that did not heed God's God's, um, instructions. Okay, and the result, the son was spared. Again, I just want to, uh, I want to note that the, it does not say that the lamb died for a penalty for the, for the sin. It said he, it was a merciful sacrifice. God said, in my mercy, this is your way out. You, you, you kill that lamb, you strike that blood, you eat it, and I will mercifully pass over you. We don't have time to turn to this, or we won't take the time. But if you would go to Leviticus 4, if you're taking notes, just write this down. Leviticus 4, 32 to 35. This is a, this is a passage where instruction is given how a lamb is to be offered for the sins of the people. And again, it talks about how the, the man's supposed to lay his hand on the lamb. The lamb is supposed to be offered. And it talks in there that it is an atonement for his sins. Okay, once again, as a representation that that lamb is dying for my sin, the hands are laid on the lamb. Not necessarily that that lamb suddenly becomes sinful because that man laid his hands on him, but it was a representation that because of my sin, this lamb shall die, and it will, it will be an atonement for me. It's not a transfer, not a transferring of the sin, it's more of a reminder. Let's turn to Hebrews 9 quick. This now is in the New Testament talking about Jesus as the uh, sacrificial lamb. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All right, why was the blood of Jesus shed here? He was offered without spot to purge my conscience of dead works. Again, I just want to point out that there is, it does not give any indication here that Jesus was, was, uh, that Jesus died in some way to appease God or as a penalty, but he died out of mercy, God's mercy for us. All right, turning a corner just a little bit now. One of the reasons that the, the, and I'll call it the penal theory, 
is, is very popular in our day and something that is, um, that is talked about in these terms a lot is because of the doctrine of Calvinism, which this penal theory is somewhat of a cornerstone. So in Calvinism, and, and, I, and I hesitate to do this because I, I don't like to get up and, and bash certain ways of thinking and, and make it sound like we have it so much more put together than somebody else, but just bear with me. I do this for just your instruction, okay? Not that I necessarily wish to tramp something in the dirt here or lift ourselves up in some way, but just as an just as instruction, just just listen to this a bit. So if you want to boil Calvinism, John Calvin's ideas down into a nutshell, he believed that man is so depraved that he can't do anything to be saved unless God plants that desire in a person. So in other words, a person can't even have the want to in him to be saved, okay, unless that's somehow put into him by God, okay? So the sovereignty of God is a, a very a big cornerstone as well in the um, in, in this theory, or the Calvinistic way of thinking. So you have that, you have that, then you have the unconditional election. In other words, God in his sovereign grace chooses whom will be and who will not be saved. And riding on the heels of that, you have what is called limited atonement. So Christ only died for those who God chooses to save, not for whom God does not choose to save. Right? When you think about that, that hardly seems right whenever the Bible says that, that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. All right? Whosoever will may come, the Bible says. And then there's the thing of the irresistible grace. So because the, the idea is that there is no free will on the part of man, but if God chooses to save you, you will be saved and you can't resist it. God will eventually save you no matter how hard you resist it if he, if he wants to do that. And, 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 and this sometimes comes out in terminology that you'll hear sometimes. You'll, you'll hear of God pursuing a person. Well, does God pursue us? I guess in some ways God pursues us. He, you know, as we pray for others and we ask for the spirit to move in that person's life, I suppose you could think of that as God pursuing us. But a, a more, I think a more biblical picture is God as a gentleman standing at the door and knocking, but he's not necessarily pursuing you. He's giving you an opportunity, but not necessarily hounding you. I, I hear the, I hear the term the hound of heaven sometimes and I cringe at that. The hound of heaven. God chasing me like down like a greyhound or something? It just doesn't feel biblical to me. Lastly, the perseverance of the saints. Or in other words, a person cannot lose his salvation once he is saved. So how does this penal theory uh, fit into this, this idea of Calvinism? Well, it goes a little like this. If Christ paid the penalty for my sins, since he did that, and I believe and I've prayed a prayer of forgiveness, nothing more is required of me anyway because I can't lose my salvation. It's a done deal. And because of this way of thinking, there is very little attention given to living a life of holiness. Because after all, as the, as the thought process goes, no one is completely sinless. And if I were to count Christian living as essential to salvation, 
it would discount the fact that the penalty has already been paid. And it is viewed as an attempt to once more buy my salvation. But the price has been paid. The penalty has been paid. The price is paid. And it would insult God for, for me to live in a way that I think I should or that I'm called to because it is viewed as an as a attempt to buy something that we cannot buy. Okay, now I know that's a lot there, and I hope you're you're getting all of that. But this goes back again to, is salvation conditional or is it unconditional? If it's unconditional, the whole world is saved. It just is. Salvation is conditional. All right? I'm going to read you a verse right out of the mouth of Peter that tells us it's conditional. When Peter was talking to Cornelius in Acts 10.34, he says he opened his mouth and he said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him, all right, there's the every nation, I don't care where you're at, every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness. That's the condition. Fear God, work righteousness, is accepted with him. Now, Peter condensed that a lot. But part of fearing God and working righteousness will be accepting those those provisional works of God that we can't do. I could not have went to Calvary and nailed myself to the cross, and it would have done one thing for me or you. But Jesus could. That's the provision that we can't do anything about. But then there's the conditional part of it. He that feareth God and works righteousness. Another point here that I think is important is God is as God of God is as much a God of mercy as He is a God of justice. God is a very just God. He is. But that does not mean He is not a merciful God. You know, this this Penal theory, as I thought through it, it's, it very much has the ring of heathen false gods. God is this angry person that just wants to destroy me for my sin. And I need him to in some way appease him. And thankfully, Jesus came to do that for me. Well, I'll grant you, the Bible does say that God is righteous, just, and holy. But this does not mean that his wrath is must be appeased by taking it out on someone. Rather, in his long-sufferingness, in his gentleness, in his kindness, in his Matthew 18 kind of way, he reaches out. And he rather offers us a way that we can be righteous and holy as well. I'd like to read you two passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New, that point this out. In Ezekiel 33:11. This is what um, God tells Ezekiel he shall tell the Jews. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In other words, I don't want to kill. I don't want to destroy the wicked. I have absolutely no pleasure in that. But that wicked, but that the wicked, turn from his way and live. That's my desire. That's God's desire. I want to see that wicked person forsake his way and live. So here's what I want them to do. Turn ye, turn ye 
from your evil ways. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? Why do you want to die, O house of Israel? I provided the way. I don't want to destroy you. Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God commendeth his love toward us. In that, here's why, here's how God showed his love to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. All right? That's some very important language in those few verses. Again, let me point out, this passage does not say that Jesus died as a penalty, but he died for an atonement for my sins. The New Testament always speaks of Christ as suffering. And you take your concordance and you just go through it and you, you look how many times the New Testament refers to Jesus as suffering for us. There's something I want you to think about. Guilty people pay penalties. Innocent people suffer. Jesus suffered. Luke 22:15, and Jesus said unto them, with desire, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Let's summarize this. God is merciful. He is just. He is fair. He mercifully offered you and I salvation while we were yet sinners. His justice could not have allowed Jesus to suffer a punishment he did not deserve. He's too just for that. He couldn't have done that. But in his fairness, he offers this provisional gift of mercy to whoever will accept the conditions of salvation. We're going to wrap this up by looking at a few terms and passages in the Bible that can be somewhat confusing. So is there not a cost or a price of salvation? We often think about this, the the price of my salvation. I'm going to read you two verses that, that that tells us what that cost is. Acts 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God. Okay, here's the, here's the phrase, which he purchased with his own blood. That's the cost, the blood of Jesus. Revelation 5, 9, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and has redeemed or has purchased or has bought back to us God by thy blood out of every kindred and nation and people and tongue. The cost of our salvation was the shedding of the precious blood of Jesus. The result of that shedding was not a penalty paid, but a God who freely forgives us of a debt that we absolutely cannot pay in his unlimited mercy. In modern terms, what ends up happening is God absorbed the cost. That's what he did. Read the parable in Matthew 18. We're referring to that several times this this morning, but read that. 
That man could not pay his debt. He couldn't do it, and he was forgiven that debt. The man, uh, the king absorbed the cost, and he forgave the man his debt. The second passage I want to look at quickly, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he hath made him, or Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All right, now that sounds like Jesus was made sin. So what should we do with that one? Well, unfortunately, we have a little bit of a translation problem here in this, in this particular verse. When Paul wrote to the, this letter to the Corinthians, he was using, he was quoting out of the Septuagint. Now the Septuagint was a Greek translated Old Testament. Unfortunately, we don't know Greek today, so we have to, uh, get cross-references and so on for, uh, for, for us to use or whatever. But in the Septuagint, it reads like this. He hath made Jesus to be a sin offering for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That clears that up. Jesus was not made sin. He was made to be a sin offering for us. It's somewhat unfortunate this isn't more clear in our Bibles. Third passage I'd like to look at, Galatians 3.13. Christ being redeemed, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. All right, here's the phrase that maybe can be a problem. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. All right? So he was made a curse for us. Does that mean that God in some way cursed Jesus? Well, if we go back to Deuteronomy 21, I think that clears it up. And if a man hath committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put on a tree, and he be, and he be to be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is cursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God hath given thee for an inheritance. Very likely, this is what Paul's is is, uh, is talking about. It's very likely the Jews wish to re- remove Jesus' body from the cross before their extra holy feast day because of this thing that a body that was left to hang overnight was accursed. There's really no evidence that God cursed Jesus beyond that. How about this one? Isaiah fifty three six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, doesn't that sound like uh, perhaps Jesus was made sin for us or somehow was made sinful? Well, again, much like the sin offering lamb in the Old Testament that was offered for sin, and he bore the sin of that person that offered him, in this way Jesus also bore our sins. Let me read Hebrews 9:28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he re- appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Again, Jesus took away our sins by becoming a blood sacrifice. He did not become sinful, but he died for our sins. All right? It's technical, I understand, but I think it's important that we don't think of it in that way. Jesus said 
No greater love has any man than he would lay down his life for his friends. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He laid his life down for his friends. And the book of Romans says he did that while we were yet sinners. All right. Again, I wish I had more time. I don't. But there's three passages. Again, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down and look them up later. But in Ephesians 4, 8 to 11, in 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, and in 1 Peter 4, 6, we, those, are, those are three passages that refer to something happening after the death of Jesus that somehow or the other he descended into the deep and preached to the dead. What happened there? Can somebody explain to me exactly what happened when that took place? Well, the fact of the matter is, the, the details are not there. We don't know exactly what happened. But I think we can say with a certain amount of surety that what didn't happen is that Jesus somehow suffered the pangs of hell for a season. Some would point to the verse in Psalm 16.10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Again, Let's point out the word hell in the Bible can mean various things. In this particular verse, it means the place of the dead. All right, if we think of it as the place of the dead, let's read now this verse on top of it. Acts twenty, Acts 2.24. Jesus, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. I won't belabor that long. All I'm tra- the point I'm just trying to make is the Bible does not say anywhere that Jesus descended into hell and suffered hell for a period of time. What he did there in the deep, we don't know. And it's not important for us to know or it would have been explained more thoroughly to us. So let's just be satisfied to leave that where it is. I have a few more points, but you know what? My time is running out, so... Here is my, here's my suggestion. You get this book and you read it. And uh, don't think you're going to read it one evening. You're probably going to have to read it and reread it. But I want you to read it if, you, if you're so inclined. I'd even lend it to you if you wish. I want to summarize the message like this. And this is the question I want to ask. Does any of this really matter? I mean, have I just bored you silly for the last half hour? And does it really even matter? That's a valid question to ask. I hope I didn't confuse you. I hope I actually informed you and didn't confuse you. That's very possible that I did that as well, I guess. So I have a, I'll answer that question with another question. Why do you suppose there's such a great difference between the way you and I practice our Christianity and the way myriads of Christians out there that say they are Christians practice their Christianity? Why is there that difference? Have you ever pondered that at all? Here is why I think it is, and you think about this. When we embrace this way of thinking that says Christianity is just a transaction in heaven and that to practice holy living is non-essential to salvation, or worse yet, it's actually an insult to God, that somehow we're trying to buy our salvation, I'm afraid we could actually end up exactly where many Christians are today. I'm afraid that's a possibility. 
In Isaiah, it says, all our righteousness is as, as, is as filthy rags. And that verse has been taken out of context and ran many miles down the road it should have never been wrote. If you look at the righteousness that were filthy rags in the context of Isaiah, you will quickly understand what it was. They were doing all these sacrifices, all these rituals, all these things, but their heart wasn't in it. And when they went home from offering their sacrifices at the temple, they were living worse than the heathen. That is righteousness that's filthy rags. It would be like you and I coming here today, all dressed up, and, you know, plenty of things to say in Sunday school, all these things, and we go out and we live like you, you fill in the blank during the week. That righteousness is as filthy rags. But to claim the blood of Jesus, apply that to our life, and to live a holy life is not filthy rags. It has been of some interest to me, and, and, and you, know, you know that I enjoy history to the joy of some and to the chagrin of others. I know that. So I won't, uh, I won't belabor this long either. But it is something I have pondered a lot. In the 1950s, George Brunk set up his tent, and he had revival meetings all over this nation in Mennonite communities. And some of you are old enough to remember that. I'm not. I just read about it. Indeed, during those times, George was addressing a need. As I mentioned way back in the beginning of this, of this message, it is possible to try to get the cart before the horse. He was addressing that problem in the church, where things looked good, but all we were doing was dressing up sinners. So he addressed that problem. And he, he emphasized the need for a changed heart. Now, this is where I don't understand what happened. That happened during the 50s, 50 to 55, maybe a little later than that, what the, the heyday of that movement. Let's put it that way. By 1965 to 70, most of the Mennonite churches in our country were falling apart very, very badly. Now, how from 1950 to 20 years later in 1970, we almost have no semblance of godliness anymore in our, in our Mennonite churches? Why was that? Now, this is just a theory, nothing beyond that. This is Dwight Burkholder's opinion, nothing beyond that. Could it be that... While George was rightly emphasizing a change of heart inside, did he go too far to the other ditch? Did he buy into the penal theory? Did he buy into something that wasn't so? And eventually ended up wrecking as many people as it saved back in the day. Now, I know that's a mouthful. And I am not discounting the good that that movement did. I know it did good. There are people that testify to that. But it is a mystery to me how that in 15 to 20 years, things went so badly downhill. You ponder that, and if you have any, any thoughts to add to that, I would be very happy to hear from you. I'm going to close with these two verses. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, 
acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Romans 12, 1. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Folks, I hope you found this helpful this morning. It was almost impossible for me to speak on this topic without feeling like perhaps I'm overemphasizing something that I shouldn't be overemphasizing. I do not want you to go home this morning thinking that I said that it's all about what we do and nothing about what Jesus did. That is not what I said. I'm just saying let's think clearly about what Jesus' blood did for us and let's act like it did do something for us. Not only act like it, let's make it. Let's make it do something for us. The blood's there. It can transform a sinner to a saint. And he wants to be a saint. He's not buying his salvation. He wants to please God. Let's kneel for prayer.